testing. There it is. Good morning. Hope everybody is doing well. Uh, let me say that this morning we will continue the study that we started roughly four weeks ago. And uh, just once again, for anybody visiting this morning who may wonder what we're doing, I was actually going to do a small group class on essential doctrines uh, of our faith. And I was asked, Pastor, would you do that on a Sunday morning? Because we all need that. And so that's how it kind of went from a small group study to the study that it is on Sunday morning. Of course, typically, we would gather and hear a sermon at this time. And uh, we will get back to that. But this is more of a teaching series, a doctrinal study. And so uh, I just want to thank you for your attendance and participation in it. And I want to remind you that you need a study guide. If you do not have a study guide, and you don't need the one just simply from two weeks ago, although there's going to be many similarities, I hope you picked up a new one this morning. If you did not, you need to raise your hand because the ushers need to get one to you. And this goes for those in the core as well. And let me remind those watching online that under the online service, there's a PDF tab. You can click on that and get the outline. And then after the service today will also be a full manuscript of the outline. Now, it won't be two different PDFs. I do want to clarify that under that one PDF tab, it puts all of the documents one after another in that one PDF. So anyway, you'll want to utilize that if you're watching online. Uh, do we have, everybody has one? And guys, I may be a little bit loud. That's, is it loud to y'all? No? Maybe they're saying no, so maybe not. Uh, I, I want to reiterate also something Kevin Seeger said about tonight, the importance of tonight. Uh, you think it doesn't apply to this area. He's made clear that it does. In fact, Concord Mills is one of the areas they target. And I think the average age for a girl to get involved in sex trafficking is something like 13 years of age. And also the way it's changed, how the people involved will go home at night. Kidnapping is only about 10% of it. 90% of it, uh, the, the young lady or gentleman lives at home, and it, a lot of it's done through Internet connections and text and phones and so forth. Uh, they leave, come back at night, so it's not what we think like we see in the movies. It, as Kevin mentioned, it is pretty eye-opening, some of the strategies and so forth, the way they get young people involved. So you do want to make sure that you're here tonight. Also, you want to be here next Sunday. Our epic ministry that uh, Kevin Seeger started on Sunday nights at 9 with our college students and young adults. They will be leading our service next week. Like you, I generally don't like to take my vacation time bunched together. But 
we have a grandson in the St. Louis area that has a birthday this week. And so tomorrow, we are driving to the St. Louis area and celebrating his third birthday this week. And so even though week before last I was gone, this week I'll be gone too. So I've got two of my vacation weeks sort of bunched together and only spread out by one, one week in between. I'm sorry, what? Okay, it's okay, Grandpa. Thank you. <laughs> but anyway, you're going to have the treat next week of hearing from our epic ministry. And then Pastor Seeger will be bringing the message. And so you don't want to uh, miss that. If you would, take your Bibles. We're going to continue with the doctrine of God today. And we're going to get specifically into the doctrine of the Trinity when we get into the doctrine of the Trinity, let me, let me say something. This will be one of the more challenging studies that we look at. Okay? So screw your thinking cap on. I'm going to try to keep it simple. But we'll dive deep a couple of times this morning. And uh, the other weeks will not be quite this way. But if you can make it through this one, you can make it through any of them. So anyway... Uh, and you can thank my wife that I trimmed things down this morning. I had about twice the material that I'm going to present. And she convinced me to trim it down. And I said, well, Connie, if I finish early, then I'm going to call you up on stage for a, a, a singing and dancing routine or something. And you got to finish out the service. So uh, she is convinced I will not finish early, though, even though I've trimmed it down. Find Deuteronomy, so are you. Find Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to these words this morning, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is. Three. The Lord is two. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now turn over to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Find Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now find 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And beginning in verse 1, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance that you give us to be a part of your corporate body, the church. God, this morning I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds, that we would understand your word more clearly in the great doctrines of the faith that help define who we are, what we believe as Christians, and the message that we are to share with the lost and dying world. As the psalmist prayed, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now folks, when we last gathered, we began looking at the doctrine of God, obviously. And we pointed out that God is knowable. God is knowable through creation, through general revelation. He's, he's given to all men knowledge enough to know that he's there. And we said general revelation is enough to know that there's a God. It's enough to condemn, it's not enough to save. For salvation, we need special revelation, which God has given to us, his written word and his living word, Jesus Christ. But he's knowable because he's chosen to make himself known. Yet at the same time, we said that God is incomprehensible, meaning that we will never fully know God. In fact, we will never fully know a single thing about God because He's infinite and we are finite. And then we looked at the character of God, especially going over some of the attributes of God. And we talked about the incommunicable attributes, those that belong to God and God alone. Things like His omnipotence, for example. He's all-powerful. That can only be said of God. So that's an incommunicable attribute. And then the communicable attributes, things like his holiness and love and goodness and truthfulness. Those attributes that we are expected to emulate. Let's continue today adding to the doctrine of God. Going over just two other points clearly before we get into the discussion of the Trinity. And these two points that finish out from two weeks ago, I'm going to go pretty fast on because, as I say, I want, to, I want to concentrate this morning on the Trinity. But let me add to our study that uh, the names of God in Scripture, the names of God in Scripture help reveal who God is and what He's like. Folks, if you want to do a wonderful study on God, his person, his nature, his character. There's all kinds of studies out today on the names of God. In fact, some of you have read books and taken courses on the names of God. And that, those studies on the names of God are a wonderful way to get to know who the God of the Bible is. You know, in Genesis 1, we find the name Elohim, God Almighty, the Creator God. Who speaks and it is done. That name Elohim and what it means. Then El Shaddai. That he is God all sufficient. And Adonai. That he's Lord. And then Yahweh. 
the covenant-keeping and covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who will be what he will be. When he met Moses and said, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Yahweh. Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Remember Abraham? When Abraham was told to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And then God stopped him. And, and Abraham looked and there was a ram in the thicket. And what did Abraham name that place? Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Aren't you thankful that you serve a God who is Jehovah Jireh. He will provide for your needs. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. The name of God oftentimes when they'd be going into battle in the Old Testament. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. That's just a very small sampling of the names of God. And each one of those names says something about who God is and how he relates to us. Then there are names, you know, we could also go over into the New Testament and we see him described there as our advocate. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the bishop of our souls. He's the chief shepherd. He's the comforter. He's the bread of life. He's the bread of life that satisfies a hunger that nothing in this world can satisfy. Only he can. He's the living water. He's the one that satisfies a thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. He's the bridegroom, the cornerstone, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the head of the church, the mediator, the great physician, the, the one who is our refuge, the word, the true vine, the lamb of God, the desire of the nations. So again, just, just a sampling of some of the names of God that we find in Scripture. And again, why do we study about the names of God? Because as we study the names of God, which what each name stands for, we're learning something about who God is as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And there's nothing greater that the Christian can do than study about God. God ought to be the preoccupation of our thoughts. There's nothing greater that we could think about. And then also I just want to point out quickly, I'm, I'm going to give you one of those 50 cent words or silver dollar words. The scripture uses anthropomorphism to describe God. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> when human characteristics are assigned to God but let, let me first of all say you know Jesus pointed out in John chapter 4 that God is what? spirit yes but the Bible also uses anthropomorphism to help us understand God in terms we can relate to and so the Bible will speak of God's heart his mouth the arm of the Lord, his finger, his hands, his eyes, his ears, his feet, his face, his countenance. And so God is described in scripture with, with terms that we can relate to. Now does this mean when we get to heaven we're going to say, God, you look just like my grandpa. 
No. Now, because Jesus is the God-man, he's fully God and fully man, he came in the flesh, flesh like ours, yet without sin. But I think in heaven, the image of Christ that we're going to see will be like the image of the glorified Christ that the apostle John saw in Revelation chapter 1. You remember that? You can read Revelation chapter 1 and see what John saw about Jesus, the way Jesus was described. I think that's the image of Christ we'll see in heaven. In other words, I don't think we will see Jesus looking identical to the way that the disciples saw him. Now, I'm sorry if that's what you're expecting to see. I just don't think he's going to look like the poor carpenter from Nazareth. I think we're going to see the glorified Christ. Now, let's move on this morning to talk about the Trinity. And I do want to spend, I I wasn't going to cover it as a topic in and of itself, but because it's, because my wife taught me into shortening things down mainly, but but also, also because this is the area probably that you approach me on as much or more than any other topic, the Trinity. When you're taught, trying to explain it to children in your Sunday school class or your kids or grandkids. Uh, this is obviously very important to Christians overall. And just by the questions I get from you on this topic, this is a topic very important to you. And so I want to spend a little more time on it this morning. As we think about the Trinity, let's let's, uh, describe it with some propositions first. Number one, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God. And then thirdly, there's one God. You see that at the beginning of your study guide, page one? Now, let me quote from Charles Ryrie for a few minutes. He says some great things on this. As he points out, you can see that a definition of the Trinity is often stated more in terms of propositions. Because a definition of the Trinity is not easy to construct. Now, one of the better definitions, perhaps, he says, is the one by B.B. Warfield, who was a professor at Princeton. Back in the days, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, when, when Princeton was a great, great theological school before liberalism soaked in. But B.B. Warfield was there with other greats like Gresham Machem and Charles Hodge, uh, But anyway, B.B. Warfield was a professor at Princeton. He said, there is one only and true God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. Now, some prefer to use the word essence in place of substance, fearing that the word substance lends itself to being understood in 
too materialistic of a way. Also, we need to find subsistence. It basically means necessary existence. And so to restate the definition, there is one only and true God, but in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-equal, uh, co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in essence, but distinct in necessary existence. Now, folks, I think about it, I agree with Charles Ryrie as far as definitions of the Trinity, that's probably about as good as we can do. Because you see, the Trinity is one of those areas when to a degree this aspect of God is incomprehensible. Again, God's made himself knowable even in this area as we'll see this morning. But to fully understand it, it's also incomprehensible. It's a doctrine that we can tenaciously defend from the Bible as I'll show you today. But it's a doctrine that is hard, granted, it's very hard for our finite minds to, to fully grasp. Now, positively, the definition clearly asserts both oneness and threeness and is careful to maintain the equality and the eternality of the three. Now, we need to understand that when we talk about the Trinity, the whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. Ryrie talks about Jesus' words in John 10, 30, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. We see there a, a balance between the diversity of the persons and the unity of the essence. I and, I and the Father clearly distinguishes two persons. And the verb are is a plural. Essentially, we are. The Father and I, we are one. And yet, one is neuter. It's not masculine or feminine. It's neuter, meaning one in nature, one in essence, but not one person, which would require a masculine form of the verb. So you see the little hints at the thought of the Trinity in different places in Scripture. We'll talk more about that. Again, as Ryrie points out, the Lord distinguished himself from the Father and yet claimed unity and equality with the Father. Now, first of all, about the Trinity this morning. Let, let's say that the doctrine of the Trinity is progressively revealed in Scripture. The word Trinity itself is not in the Bible. It comes from the Latin word trinitas, which means threeness. But though the word is not there, the concept is everywhere. From Genesis 1 and following, the concept of the Trinity is, is, is everywhere. You see, if God is eternal and we hold to the Trinity, it would be surprising if we didn't find hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And indeed we do. In fact, from the 
first chapter. You know, we, we read the Spirit of God was hovering over the, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. And then when God was about to create man, what did he say? Let me make man in my image. Is that what he said? What did he say? Let us make man in our image. Now, some groups have tried to say that maybe God is speaking in the plural of majesty. Like if a king were to say, we are happy to grant your request. When it was him granting your request. Okay? But in Old Testament Hebrew, there are no examples of a monarch using plural verbs or plural pronouns of himself in a plural of majesty. Others have tried to suggest that maybe God was speaking to the angels. Let us make God in our image. But folks, angels didn't participate in the creation of man. Nor was man created in the image and likeness of angels. So that option has to be ruled out. The best explanation is that already right here in the first chapter of Genesis, we have an indication of a plurality of persons in God himself. Also, look at that small point number three that I gave you under, under number one. There are passages where one person is called God or Lord and is distinguished from another person who's also said to be God. Psalm 45, 6, and 7 would be an example of this. Here we read, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Listen, listen to the psalmist here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So in those two verses, there's two that he's referring to there as God. But do we serve two gods? No, as we'll see in a minute. Christians, just like Jews, believe that God is one. We see a plurality within the Godhead, but we do not believe in three gods. We read that Deuteronomy passage to begin with. And in that Deuteronomy passage, the word for one is ekad. Now, if I said Hebrew right, it's kind of a guttural language. I'd kind of sound like I had something hung in my throat and, and maybe even spit on you a little bit. As I said, ekad. Often that's a word that means not one in isolation, but one in unity. And I'll explain more about that in a minute. In fact, the word's not always used in the Hebrew Bible of a single entity. 
Now, we want to be careful not to overstate that. People who say of a word, this word never means this, are often wrong because words need to be understood in context. But yakid would perhaps be the better word that would mean single. But ekad is the word used, for example, when speaking of a cluster of grapes. You see a plurality within that one cluster. Or saying that the people of Israel responded as one man. Genesis 2 uses the word ekad when it says that the man and his wife became one flesh. Now it obviously doesn't mean they became one person. You had a man and a woman joined together and they became some other kind of third person. The two became one, a unity. What I'm, what I'm saying is we wouldn't want this to be our only argument for the Trinity, but I think it factors in powerfully with the other arguments collectively. Now, when we spoke of the attributes of God last time, and as I started today, when we spoke of the attributes of God, such as omniscience or omnipresence or omnipotence and so forth and so on these attributes apply to each member of the Trinity and I think that's something very important to understand the attributes we say of one we can say of each member of the Trinity Now, right away, somebody could bring up a good point, which I don't want to get into today because that, too, would be a whole separate topic. Somebody might say, so if we speak of the Father being omniscient, we could say that the Son is also omniscient? And I would say, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And then they might bring up, but what about when Jesus said, of that time, no one knows, not even the Son? Well, we've got to recognize that there were other times when Jesus did display omniscience. For example, when he told Peter to go fishing and he would catch a fish... And in that fish would be a coin that Peter could take out and use to pay his taxes. How could Jesus have possibly known that without omniscience? Or how about when the disciples said, we've been fishing all night and have caught nothing. And Jesus said, cast out your net over there. And the nets were so full that they broke. What, what we venture into here is known as canonic Theology, this is not going to be on your test, okay? From the word kenosis, emptying. It, kenotic theology deals with Philippians 2. Philippians 2, when it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Canonic theology asks the question, what is it that Jesus emptied himself of? And rivers of ink have been spilt on this. And again, that's far beyond the scope and purpose of today. But let it, let it suffice to say that in the incarnation, Jesus emptied himself of the former glory he enjoyed with the Father before the incarnation. That's why in John 17, 5, when Jesus knew his time had come to be crucified and raised and then ascend back to the Father, he could say, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he obviously had emptied himself of the glory he shared with the Father before the incarnation. But that doesn't mean that in the incarnation he emptied himself of his deity. On occasions in the councils of the Trinity that we're not privy to, apparently there were occasions when Jesus' omniscience would be somewhat veiled and other occasions when his omniscience would shine as brightly as ever and be on full display why at one time do we see his omniscience and don't seem to see it at another time in scripture I we just have to say that's above our pay grade but we do see both in the scripture sometimes it's veiled sometimes it's not so again I unapologetically state what we can say of one member of the Trinity, as, as far as attributes, we can say of each member. Now, we see each member having different roles, different functions, but the same as far as essence and attributes. Well, number two. We see more complete revelation of the Trinity in the New Testament. There's passages where we see all three showing up together. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. Begin reading with me in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So all three members of the Godhead show up. In, in those two verses. We, we read a moment ago the, the Great Commission. 
shows us the same. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 14. Listen to, listen to what uh, Paul says there. As he ends the book of 2 Corinthians, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then just one other. I've given you others you can look up. But at the end of the book of Jude. Verses 20 and 21. Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So here again. A number of places in the scripture. In the same passage, we'll see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being referred to. Now, three statements then summarize the biblical teaching. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Now, from the early 13th century, best we know, comes something, comes a graph or a picture that I, I think is kind of helpful. It's called the shield of faith. And you'll see it's in the form of a triangle. Look in the middle, God, you see that? And top left corner, the Father is God. Top right corner, the Son is God. Bottom point. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son's not the Father. The Son's not the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's a graph that'll kind of help you conceptualize things. Each person is fully God. Let's think a moment about the prologue to John's gospel. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was, uh, uh, let's see. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, time out. Screw your thinking caps on a little tighter, okay? Let's talk about something. This won't be on the test either. And why do I even mention why I'm about to mention what I am? Why, why even do that? Because if you're like me around here, something you're going to have happen quite a bit because they're quite active around here on a Saturday morning. And who's it going to be? Jehovah Witnesses. And there'll be two or three of them standing there. <clears throat> they have their own translation of the Bible. The New World Translation. Terrible translation. Done by their own people. 
They, they will tell you that John 1, 1 through 4 says the word was a God, little g. And they'll try to justify this by saying that the definite article the is not in the text before theos, God. Now, I think it's very significant that there is no reputable Greek scholar anywhere in the world that follows their logic here or their translation. And this is one of the reasons why language and grammar studies do indeed matter. Actually, the sentence follows a regular rule of Greek grammar and the absence of the definite article merely indicates that God is the predicate rather than the subject of the sentence. It is known as Colwell's rule. The rule is simply that in sentences with the linking verb to be a definite predicate noun will usually drop the definite article when it precedes the verb, but the subject of the sentence, if definite, will retain the definite article. Again, I told you, this is not on the test. (laughs) And to show you how inconsistent the Jehovah Witnesses will be, even in their New World Translation, they'll say it's a God, little g, in in, in verse 1 through 4, but, but then in verse 6 of the same chapter, verse 6, verse 12, verse 13, verse 18, they translate it God, big G, in every occasion there. They're not even inconsistent with what they try to tell you. John knew his Greek grammar. John did it exactly right. But you see, like so many cult groups will do, When the Bible doesn't fit their theology. You see, our theology ought to grow out of the Bible. If the Bible doesn't fit our theology and we start changing the Bible to fit our theology, folks, we're in trouble. And I tried to talk to them about this one time. Got out my Greek New Testament. Had some of them show up at my door. And they said, we're going we're gonna to have one of our elders meet with you. And I did meet with him at the library. And I said, for example, in Colossians 2.9, the, the word thetos, that Jesus is very God of very God. I mean, you can't get a stronger statement of the deity of Christ than that. But they, they cut out that word thetos and they substitute in a weaker word that just simply means Jesus. Jesus was a good man who was created but had some godlike characteristics. And I pointed him down the, the critical apparatus at the bottom of the page in the Greek New Testament where they tell you if there's any variant readings, any justification for different readings. I said there is no variant reading, no manuscript evidence anywhere of why you cut this word out and, cut and paste in another word to suit your theology. I might as well have been talking to a brick wall. But again, just know that John 1, 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 20, 28, 
What did Thomas say of Jesus when Thomas finally believed, when Jesus said, fill the nail prints and all? What, what was the confession Thomas made? My Lord and my God. Did Jesus correct him? No. Jesus didn't correct him. In fact, we could say that the whole Gospel of John is written specifically to point out that Jesus is indeed divine. He's the Son of the living God. God the Son and the Son of God. The whole Gospel of John is written so that we will see the deity of Christ. All the signs, the miracles that John records, the word that's used was, was signs and miracles that the people knew that only God could do. And here's Jesus doing those things that only God can do. Therefore, who must Jesus be? He must be God. And that's the point of these signs or miracles in John's gospel. In the Great Commission, the Holy Spirit is also set down on an equal standing with the Father and the Son. Baptizing in, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is put on an equal footing as the Father and the Son. And then in Acts 5, 3 through 4, Peter asked Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but to God. You see what Peter is saying there? Ananias, by, by, by lying to the Holy Spirit, who have you lied to? You lied to God. Now, let me mention that analogies have shortcomings. Analogies have shortcomings. Let's say up front that human analogies or illustrations out of nature, for example, have their shortcomings. I'll, I'll talk a moment, in, in a moment, about like water, steam, and ice, things out of nature. What people usually end up doing is either dividing the essence of the members of the Trinity or they compromise the distinction between the three persons or they lose sight of God's personal essence because the illustrations are usually of an inanimate object. Whereas God is not inanimate, he's personal. So again, these analogies break down. Water, steam, and ice. No quantity of water is ever all three of these at the same time. They've got different properties or characteristics. That, and that especially the element of intelligent personality is missing. The danger in the water analogy too is that somebody might come to believe in modalism. Now hang on, I'll talk about that in a moment. But basically, modalism says that each member of the Trinity existed in different modes at different times. For instance, and, and by the way, as we'll cover in a minute, this is a heresy. But the, the modalist says God was the Father in the Old Testament. 
He's the son in the New Testament. And then from the days of Pentecost on to today, he's the Holy Spirit. So at different times, he's shown up in a different way. Now, there's huge problems with modalism because the Bible teaches that God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the water, steam, and ice illustration might cause a child, for instance, to think of the Trinity in terms of modalism, and you certainly wouldn't want to get a child thinking that way. Likewise, the three-leaf clover illustration might cause somebody to think of the Trinity in, in terms of partialism. So in some way, they might see a leaf in isolation from the other leaves. A conclusion about these analogies, because again, a lot of you have asked me about these. If used sparingly or carefully, I guess they can have their, their place and purpose. But I would be very careful because all of them break down, okay? The biggest problem I have with trying to use these illustrations out of nature to describe the Trinity is that Scripture nowhere uses them. And I think that ought to be a lesson to us to take caution against using them too. Okay, quickly. I guess, Connie, you're not going to have to come up here and sing and dance. (laughs) Modalism under number four, misrepresentations and heresies. Misrepresentations and heresies, modalism. Which again claims that there is one person who appears to us in three different forms or modes at different periods. It was also called, and this is on the screen, Sabellianism, after the teacher Sabellius, who lived in Rome in the early 3rd century A.D., He was also referred to as modalistic monarchianism for the reasons I've given you there. Now, the fatal shortcoming of modalism. Look at number four on your your study guide. The fatal, uh, small number four under the big four. The fatal shortcoming of modalism is the fact that it must deny the personal relationships within the Trinity that appear in so many places in Scripture. For example, it's got to deny the three persons of the Godhead at the baptism, for example. It must also say that in all cases where Jesus prayed to the Father, that was just a charade. Number five, modalism denies the independence of God. For if God is only one person, then he also has no ability to love and to communicate without other persons in his creation. Because, see, we believe that within the members of the Godhead, there's perfect communion and fellowship. But without the Trinity... He has no ability to love and communicate without persons in his creation. And so therefore God would have had to have created the world and us 
And so that would mean that he's no longer independent of creation. We believe God's independent. The aseity of God that we talked about, we don't complete God in any way. God is sufficient in and of himself. Arianism is another heresy. Arianism. And this term is derived from Arius, the bishop of Alexandria, whose views were condemned at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Now, Arius taught that God the Son was at one point created by God the Father, and, and that before that time, the Son didn't exist, nor did the Holy Spirit, but only the Father. I, again, who did I talk about a moment ago, modern day, that would sort of be the descendants of Arianism? JWs, Jehovah Witnesses. Then there's uh, subordinationism. Subordinationism. Number seven, little seven on your outline. While holding that the Son is eternal, this nonetheless taught that the Son was not equal to the Father in being or attributes. You know, in function, Jesus submitted to the Father, didn't he? In function, in role. But not in essence. He's not subordinate. He's equal. The number eight is adoptionism. This is the view that Jesus lived just as an ordinary man, but then God adopted Jesus as his son and conferred on him supernatural powers. Again, I want to be clear. All of these are heresies when we're talking about the Trinity. And then the last one I've written out for you there is tritheism. Three gods. Rather than one Godhead made up of three distinct personalities, tritheism says there are three gods who make up the Trinity. Now that would be nothing short of polytheism. Let me just conclude by saying... Look at, those, look at those three points I gave you, and we'll wrap up. The deity of each of the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, must be affirmed. Each is qualitatively the same. The Son is divine in the same way and to the same extent as is the Father, and this is true of the Holy Spirit as well. Two, the Trinity is eternal. There have always been three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each member has always been divine. None of them came into being at some point in time or at some point became divine. The triune God is and will be what he always has been. And thirdly, the function of one member of the Trinity may for a time be subordinate to one or both of the other members, but that does not mean he is in any way inferior in essence. Each of the three persons of the Trinity has had for a period of time a particular function unique to himself. This is to be understood as a temporary role for the purpose of accomplishing a given end 
not a change in his status or essence. I'm going to wrap up by reading a section to you out of Wayne Gruden. The importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. Why was the church so concerned about the doctrine of the Trinity? Is it really essential to hold to the full deity of the Son and the Holy Spirit? Yes, it is. For this teaching has implications for the very heart of the Christian faith. First, atonement is at stake. If Jesus is merely a created being and not fully God, then it's hard to see how he, a creature, could bear the full wrath of God against all of our sins. Could any creature, no matter how great, really save us? Second, justification by faith alone is, is threatened if we deny the full deity of the Son. This is seen today in the teaching of the Jehovah Witnesses who do not believe in justification by faith alone. If Jesus is not fully God, we would rightly doubt whether we can really trust him to save us completely. Could we really depend on any creature fully for our salvation? Thirdly, if Jesus is not infinite God, should we pray to him or worship him? Who but an infinite, omniscient God could hear and respond to all the prayers of God's people? And who but God himself is worthy of worship? Indeed, if Jesus is merely a creature, no matter how great, it would be idolatry to worship him. And yet the New Testament commands us to worship him. Fourth, if someone teaches that Christ is a created being, but nonetheless one who saved us, then this teaching wrongly begins to attribute credit for salvation to a creature and not to God himself. But this wrongfully exalts the creature rather than the creator, something scripture never allows us to do. Fifth, the independence and personal nature of God are at stake. If there is no trinity, then there were no interpersonal relationships within the being of God before creation. And without personal relationships, it's difficult to see how God could be genuinely personal or be without the need for a creation to relate to. So is it important? Yes, it's important. It's important for the gospel. Because what's the gospel? We could say the Father did what? Here's, what, here's how people have kind of broken it down. And, and I think this speaks pretty well. The Father planned our redemption. The Son executed it. And the Holy Spirit draws us to Christ. He applies it. Now again, all members are involved, but each had a distinct role in the plan of redemption. So is the Trinity important? Certainly. And also it says something about if, if there's communion within the Godhead, He's personal, and He communes with us, then our communion with Him and with one another is very much a part of the Christian life too. Amen? Would you stand please?